CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right. Your Ben Jarofsky podcast is just moments away. That's not correct. Yes, it is. <laughs> you think it's a radio show, but it's a podcast. That's not correct. Okay. We're just moving on. <laughs> Our ben, the ben I Jarofsky. keep trying to correct her. I know. Keep trying to correct her. She I know. Just, She's stubborn that way, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Good Lord. Yeah. The Ben Jarofsky Podcast with columnist Ben Jarofsky. That's not clear. Okay, he is a columnist. (laughs) You called him a reporter. Podcast on on radio show. That's why they got erasers at the end of pencils. You make a mistake. I make mistakes all the time. All the freak. And my readers love pointing them out to me, D. But come on, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Not a reporter, not a radio show. <laughs> this show is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of reefer to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com, and if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J O R A. V is in victory, S-K-Y. Ben, give me the rock. (laughs) It is Thursday, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. And this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Now your host, is he inebriated? I don't know. It's St. Patrick's Day. He might be. Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Johnny Hardball Thursday. And here's why. I'll tell you why. Because Johnny C, Johnny Catanzara, head of the Fraternal Order Police, is playing hardball. That's why. But before we get to that, let me say this. You're not drunk. Oh, yes. I am definitely not drunk. Okay, Hold good, on. good, good, good. It's just water. Miles Complacent has joined us early, ladies and gentlemen. Miles Complacent has joined us early. That's the breaking news. Mm. <laughs> so before we bring Miles on, I'm going to play a game that we haven't played in a while, D. And it's the Battle of the Headline. Hey, you got you got the name right, so that's good. Did I? Yeah, you usually go, yo, D, headline battle. Like, no, Battle of the Headlines. Come on. Let's title you know this thing. That crop. was a mistake. I wanted to be wrong. I, I know. I was right. God dang. Ah, you broke, that broke the fourth wall today, my friend. Uh, so anyway, here we <laughs> So um, breaking news in the city of Chicago, uh, for me anyway, because I get my news from daily newspapers that are a 24-hour cycle as opposed to following Twitter, which I probably should do. But that's another story for another time. Uh, Jesse Smollett has been released uh, from Cook County Jail on uh, bond. Uh, while he awaits a decision on his appeal uh, of his conviction or sentencing for 150 days. Wow. Uh, So we can't stop talking about it. My lefty friends, my hardcore lefty friends are just outraged. They're sick and tired of hearing about Justice Millett, but I can't stop talking about it. Anyway, 
I saw these headlines, these dueling headlines in the Tribune today, uh, excuse me, in the Sun-Times of Tribune today, D, and I just said we have to play dueling headlines, uh, battle of the headlines. There we go. Battle of the headlines. Yes, yes. Damn, I was hoping to screw it up again. All right, here we go. All right. So so here's the Tribune headline, okay? Here you go. Let's hear it. (laughs) Smollett can go free for appeal, court rules. Okay. Smollett can go free for appeal court rules that's a comma and then court rules and that's the tribune that's the tribunal all right now here's my beloved bright one chicago sun times home delivered every day <laughs> you can see you can see already the bias here we go jailbreak for jussie jailbreak for jussie with a huge picture of justice Millet walking out of prison or walking out of jail with a mask on his face jailbreak for jussie Smollett can go free for appeal court rules dr d the ball is in your court. Okay. Um, well, usually, uh, sometimes they get caught in the pun zone. I've been there. You know, you get caught in puns. You keep, you know, you jump the shark. No puns there. They did use alliteration. And can you repeat the Chicago Tribune? No, it is a pun. It is a pun. Is it? Yes, it's definitely a pun. Oh, my God. Yes. How is it a uh, pun? Jailbreak. Like, you got out, you broke out of jail. Yeah. So, it's a jailbreak. And then jail break as in you're getting a break from jail oh did they spell it like did they spell it differently or? well no it's not spelled different it's just like there's two separate meanings of the word break and so that's the pun some brilliant sometimes editor editing uh editor who's a poet when he's not writing or she's not writing headlines came up with that one so he is all right Bundy. well since i'm confused we're going with the chicago tribune way to throw a brick up there sometimes good lord uh, no i have to disagree come on tribute up your game all right before i bring miles on i'm going to talk about this story maybe miles will have something to say about this uh we've not discussed this in our uh, extensive pre-show prep uh miles kemplossen uh, editor writer for in these times and frequent guest in the ben jarofsky show and pro graduate of whitney young high school um so uh, there was a story in today's Sun-Times about John Cantanzaro, the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, who is laying down the law. I think MAGA's lost her freaking mind. I, and I'm just I'm going to preface this by saying, in my humble opinion, John Cantanzaro, please don't take this the wrong way, but MAGA has lost its mind. And you, as the leader of MAGA in the city of Chicago, yes, you're the most prominent Donald Trump do-or-die supporter that this city has. So you should, you know, take a bow for that. Uh, why the fraternal order, why the police officers think it's a good idea to have a do or die Donnie Trump supporter running their union in a city that uh, despises Donald Trump by and large? That's not my decision to make. I am not a voting member of the fraternal order police, but he's laid down the law. Okay. And he has insisted that uh, all the uh, committeemen in his area on the northwest side, the southwest side, uh, Follow his command. No, excuse me, on the north northwest side. Follow his command and endorse this police officer they've uh, uh, picked to run against Rob Martwick, good friend of the show, state senator Rob Martwick. What up, Rob? And, they, and they've insisted that you have got to uh, be against Rob Martwick. And uh, Rob Martwick is supported by the Firefighters Union. Why is he supported by the Firefighters Union? Good question, Dennis. I'm glad you asked it. He's supported by the Firefighters Union because he carried their water on a controversial bill that extended uh, pension benefits for firefighters. Boy, did he get Lori Lightfoot mad at him when he did that. She's so mad at him because like every mayor, they don't want to have to spend their uh, budget 
on geezers. They just want you guys to disappear. That's, you know, that's how we do. I remember Mayor Rahm going to firehouses, telling the firefighters, I'm going to cut your pension. And you're going to, you're going to have to go along with it. Well, he had a back down. So mayors don't want to spend money on pensions, despite the fact that many senior citizens rely on them to live because they'd rather spend the money on other things like, you know, Lincoln Yards, whatever. So uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is really mad at Mark Wick. Mark stuck his neck out. The firefighters union supported him. And as such, Nick Spazzato, uh, Anthony Napolitano and Jim Gardner, three conservative Northwest Side uh, aldermen are endorsing Martwick. They're all former firefighters. You follow this, folks? And Kat Zara is so angry. And he uh, had a showdown with them, according to the Bright One, same newspaper uh, with the headline about Jesse. And this is what he says, quote, Kat and Zara, you either back the police or you don't. And when it's hard, we expect you to do it. You don't get to do it and say it's only when it's easy. You have to do it when it's hard. This is the opportunity to do it when it's hard. Wow. It sounds like Kent Zara saying, vote blue no matter who. And no matter what, no matter who, no matter whatever I say, you got to do is what he's saying. Come on, Johnny. See, you got to give him a little break. There's more than just police officers up on the northwest side. There's firefighters, too. And by the way, your pension's in trouble, too. You're going to need some assistance for your pension. Or what? Pensions don't matter to you either? Is that where we're at right now with MAGA? Uh, Donald Trump, by the way, I just want to say this to my uh, listeners out there who are members of the Fraternal Order Police, despite the unwavering support that your leadership has given Donald Trump, has never done a thing for police pensions. Never one thing. All those Republicans you vote for have never done a thing. I'm just saying that. I'm throwing it out there. So you're not going to stay young forever. Eventually, you're going to retire and you're going to want your pension. But no. You support these right-wing lunatics who don't support pensions. I'm not a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. I think John Cazera has just, it's been, I think, you know what? You know what, D? I think what happened is, like me, John Cazera has been watching The Godfather. I've been watching The Godfather. It's 50-year anniversary. I love that movie tremendously. But I don't, like vibe on what a great leader Michael Corleone is. I think it's a tragedy what happened to Michael Corleone. Went from a decent guy to a ruthless gangster. I'm starting to wonder, does Johnny C get a different interpretation when he watches that movie? Does he kind of like want to be Michael Corleone? And like, I give the orders. You follow. I'm just saying, first of all, I want to give a shout out to Nick Spazzato. One time Miles was on the show with Nick Spazzato, one of the great shows of all time. I had the far left and I had the far right on the same show. So I'm going to give a shout out. Nick Spazzato, you held your ground. I give you a lot of credit for that. Uh, You did what you thought was the right thing to support Martwick, and I don't blame you. Martwick stuck his neck out for the firefighters. There's no loyalty in Chicago anymore. We saw that with Mayor Lori Lightfoot, how she threw uh, Alderwoman Sue uh, Sadlowski-Cars under a bus. I see there is absolutely no loyalty in the city of Chicago. Zara is throwing Spazzato. Spazzato was stood by the police through thick and thin. I disagree with 90% of the stuff, but I give him credit for standing by him. And that's the reward he gets. It's just, wow. Johnny C has watched The Godfather one too many times. All right, that's uh, enough about that particular topic. Let's bring on the legendary uh, Whitney Young graduate, Miles Kampflassen. Uh, and editor and uh, writer extraordinaire for In These Times. Welcome back miles 
Thank you. Very good to be here. <laughs> you know, when, uh, when, when Dennis sends me an invite, I show up. That's, I, just, I, that's I, my I one rule. Well, you got to hear me going on and on about Johnny C. We did not talk about this in any way. Uh, before we move on to the topics that we have uh, talked about talking about, uh, do you have any thoughts on what I just uh, related to you about the demands that Johnny Catanzaro is making of the generally supportive alderman from the northwest side? Uh, I don't think it's going to help his uh, mayoral aspirations for 2023 if he's alienating even the the, the very few people that might be uh, willing to side with him in a showdown with Lori Lightfoot and whoever, who knows who else will run for, for mayor. But I mean, you know, he's Ken is still uh, anti-vax, right? So he's, so he probably, so I know he's not a, like really a cop anymore, but does that, will he even be able to like run, like be in hold debates and do all that with city regulations if he's, if he's unvaxxed? I don't even know. I would just say that's one area where um, if you're talking about standing with cops, you want to keep people safe. Maybe you should take some basic public health, you know, measures to, um, you know, protect your fellow uh, employees in the police department. And I don't think he's setting a very good example of that with his anti-vax rhetoric. Well, let me just say he has, does have anti-vax rhetoric, but let me just say this in defense of Johnny Catanzara. Uh, I don't want to set the record straight. I'm pretty sure he got at least one vaccine, uh, vaccine, a uh, vaccination, uh, miles. And I recall, uh, at the time he said he got it because he wanted to be able to travel. And there were restrictions on travel uh, if you weren't vaxxed. And that's my recollection. I don't know if he had the booster. I really don't know much beyond what I just said. So, uh, but where he is anti-vax, he's joining the effort uh, to prevent the city. This is a whole other topic, which we've talked about in the show many times, and I'm not going to go down the road. Uh, but uh, he is leading the effort uh, to keep the city from mandating uh, that police officers uh, get the vax. And that's an ongoing uh, battle. Uh, and right now we're at a moment, the, uh, I call it the eye of the hurricane miles. I absolutely believe, I think I mentioned this to you yesterday. I absolutely believe, uh, COVID will become, come raging back at some time within the next year. And, uh, you know, uh, so we're, everybody's dropping their masks being really like last night I went into a bar and I was the only one wearing a mask. That's all right. Okay. Okay. You know, I, I'm better. I got a feeling, uh, like I said, it's the eye of the hurricane. And, uh, so even though these battles that, that play out between the police department, uh, and the city and the, the teachers union, uh, excuse me, the, poli- the fraternal order police in the city and the teachers union and the Chicago public schools right now, they the stakes don't seem so high miles because we're in this eye of the, of the hurricane. But I got a feeling that we'll be right back uh, about six months, right in time for the mayoral election. How about that? Um, all right, let's talk some national uh, and international politics. Uh, the last time we were on the show, you did a really good job. Got a lot of compliments from listeners. Uh, your insights on Ukraine uh, and the Americans, uh, the U.S. government's response to it. Uh, that seems like ancient history, uh, Miles. The war has been raging now for, I want to say, two and a half, three weeks. Uh, the newspapers are filled with just horrific headlines and photos and stories. Uh, and yesterday, uh, the uh, president of Ukraine addressed Congress with an appeal uh, for more aid for uh, to end uh, a no-fly zone, to institute a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, just, I guess, we'll start with the most general. What's, uh, what was your thoughts about the president of Ukraine's speech before Congress yesterday? 
well, the continued uh, incursion upon Ukraine is, you know, uh, moral tragedy, and it continues to unfold in front of our eyes. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people that have not been plugged into international conflict in recent years are really unused to, you know, seeing, especially on mainstream news, the uh, sight of bombers and tanks rolling through, uh, you know, a seemingly uh, a democracy, you know, a, a country that is aligned with the United States. Um, and because of that, there's obvious anguish, you know, not just among the Ukrainian people, but the diaspora and the United States and across the world and just people that care for, you know, humanity and don't want to see needless bloodshed. And the, the President Zelensky's speech, I think, spoke to that, to the fact that there's, you know, there really is a breaking point being reached by the Ukrainian government. But there is also some hope in that there's, I think, more political pressure now on uh, Russia and Putin to make some type of a ceasefire agreement than there there has been. I mean, I'm not a geopolitical negotiator, but judging by the rhetoric, I mean, you can see even Nancy Pelosi uh, talked about how Zelensky's demand for a no-fly zone, as you indicated before, has uh, been rolled back a little bit. And now what they're asking more for is air supports, you know, to get the type of planes they would need to kind of implement their own no-fly zone. Those are two completely different scenarios. I mean, it's, it's horrendous to think of any military confrontation being escalated. And I think that that's something anybody who believes in a vision of peace, you know, an anti-war should think long and hard about. Um, and that includes the U.S. sending weapons to Ukraine. You know, we just uh, approved a huge new uh, package of, uh, of of weapons, including artillery, uh, to be sent over along with humanitarian aid. Um, but weapons directly to Ukraine that will be used to fight the Russians. But still, that's on a completely different level than the U.S. being involved in setting up a no-fly zone. I mean, even if you look back at Libya, you know, the people that were calling for a no-fly zone, even hawks within the, um, uh, you know, within the national security complex cautioned against it because they said, you know, a no-fly zone means taking out, uh, you know, anti-aircraft setups in the country. It means basically going to war. And if the U.S. enters a war against a nuclear power in Russia, we are on the brink of a much more disastrous and consequential military conflict than um, than we're seeing right now that has ramifications that we can't even imagine. I mean, I when I started doing kind of political organizing work, it was for an organization called Peace Action that mm-hmm. still exists, and it was a... Uh, um, it, organized itself around principles of nuclear disarmament. It came from the ban the bomb lobby and the nuclear freeze, these groups that were um, more popular during the Cold War when there was really a, you know obvious threat of uh, p- potential nuclear, um, uh, some type of a nuclear conflict. And the reality of that is horrendous. I don't think that there's anything that we, um, I don't think that, there are many of us in the United States have thought through the actual consequences of a nuclear conflict and a no-fly zone 
you know, the U.S. getting involved in that could be a step down that road. Um, and that's so, you know, just unimaginable to, to think of. So I think it's important to support Ukraine, but that means a diplomatic solution. I don't think there's going to be a military solution to this war. Um, I think it's going to necessarily result in there being a negotiated settlement and that the U.S. should do everything possible to help reach that settlement. Um, and and that includes certainly humanitarian aid and doing everything we can to support the actual Ukrainian people. Because as we've seen from the uh, devastating sanctions the U.S. has placed on Russia, the economy in Russia has been crippled. And the people that are facing the main consequences of that are... Uh, ordinary Russians who are bereft of any real ability to engage with the political system. I mean, it's an authoritarian government there that's kind of a sham democracy, I would say, because of how, you know, political dissidents are um, stifled in every way, if not, you know, jailed and or exiled or even poisoned in some cases. I mean, it's a brutal um, regime there. And because of that, the people that face the consequences of these economic uh, retaliations from the United States and the rest of the West are um, our ordinary Russians. And that's something else that I think that we need to, to think about because it's not Putin, you know, and his thugs that are all being the, the ones that are facing these consequences. They're rich and isolated, you know, I mean, isolated from the people that are facing these consequences. It's not good for them politically, obviously. And I think that that, potentially will help to lead towards uh, a quicker settlement. But that's another, you know, issue that I don't think people um, take stock of all the time because our media doesn't talk so much about the consequences of sanctions um, on Russia. But I mean, it was true in Iran. It's true. And if you look across the country and countries that uh, if you look across the world, countries we've placed these draconian uh, sanctions on, the people that have faced the most consequences are just ordinary working people that have no impact on the foreign policy decisions of their governments. And if we want to build, you know, a more equal world, we've got to um, think through ways we can help to prohibit there being uh, violent altercations and, um, and wars while also uh, not punishing the people that are the least responsible for um, taking their countries to war in the first place. Because, I mean, it's, it's always for the people. It, it just as, you know, going to war, it's the poor that fight the wars and the rich that start them. That's true when it comes to economic warfare as well. So I think that that's, you know, something we should all keep in mind during this while also trying to advocate as much as possible a real diplomatic solution to to this conflict that's well put and uh it's it's a very somber message that you have about sanctions uh and generally the theory behind sanctions as i understand it from uh, reading uh, the quotes in the newspapers of the people imposing them is that if you make life difficult for people in Russia right now or Iran or wherever else the United States imposes uh, sanctions, uh, then you will uh, put they will put pressure on the, the despots who have led that uh, country into, in this case, a war uh, in Ukraine. And I'm thinking, I don't know where that has ever been supported by fact. If there's repression in a country uh, and uh, there's force against the repressors, more often than not, the repressors just crack down. And so 
you're exactly right. Putin will not feel the consequences of U.S. sanctions, but ordinary Russians will. Uh, and um, life will be that much more difficult uh, in Russia. At the same time, what are you going to do? You're just going to allow Putin to march in without consequence and destroy a country? Well, I guess the United States, United States response would be, well, we, we determine when uh, a country has the right to march into another country and destroy it. Uh, and so, Miles, really, it's it just the more you think about it and the more you work out all the different uh, strategies that are being um, imposed and the rationale, the more none of it makes any sense. And that's what ultimately uh, is so frustrating when I think of, try to think about how can I propose in my own little way, my own little meager podcast, a solution to this? I just see utter madness. Is there any way? Do you see anything outside of utter madness and irrationality? Well, of course, I think that there's, you know, we live in a globalized system and there's always, you know, we need to center ourselves inside of that. How do we relate to the rest of the world, both as citizens in a society and as members of a polity, you know, as part of a, a democratic uh, system that we, we live in. And I don't think abandoning hope and just giving up to, you know, get, going full Joker-fied or whatever and being like, it all <laughs> doesn't make sense anymore <laughs> is a proper uh, response. I mean, look throughout history. There's always been times when things don't seem like they make sense and people don't have impact on the, you know, geopolitical decisions being made. I was out in 2002, 2003 trying to stop you know, the Iraq war from starting. And I felt completely powerless because our country banged the drums and led us into uh, an illegal and unnecessary invasion and then occupation of, uh, of Iraq that carried on for over a decade. I mean, that's, that's, you could be enough to make you feel like there's no way we can impact things, but that's a narrow view of how, you know, we exist on this world. There's always, you know, being a voice for peace and justice is, uh, is important because if you don't um, spell out alternatives to what the, you know, mainstream narrative, whether that's coming from corporate media or whether that's coming from the state department or whether that's coming from despots, um, if you don't offer an, an alternative, then you're just seeding all ground, you know, it's checking out of the system. And so I don't think it's all just madness. I think there is uh, rhyme and reason to it. I mean, myself, you know, as we have as we've discussed, I'm a democratic socialist. I have kind of a generally materialist analysis of things. I think that ultimately, if you look at what's going on in Russia, I mean, there, there's geopolitical and imperial aims, I would say, by uh, the Russian government and by Putin, but it also has to do with economics and trying to secure as much, you know, uh, you know, whether it's oil fields or whether it's, you know, industries that are in Ukraine as, as possible. And that the U S has economic interests as well that are playing into this. And that is, you know, part of this broader, um, conflict and, we need to propose an alternative way of kind of setting up societies that is tangible, is practical, you know, not just like, oh, we just need to all live in peace and forget our problems and everything's going to be fine. I mean, there's questions of human nature we can get into, but like, I think rather the most important thing is, is showing how, you know, what different way, what different choices can our leaders make and how can we 
place some pressure on them to make those decisions to um, that would help to lead towards a more peaceful and just uh, settlement to some of these very deep-seated international conflicts, rather than just writing it up and saying, you know, Russia's a bear, like they were in the Cold War, and this is how they'll always be, and what have you. I mean, a lot of that, I think, is reductive, or at least it's it, it's a recipe for inaction, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's helpful to to anyone. At the same at the same time, I don't think just you know reading the news and feeling bad all the time is is a solution <laughs> either. And that's no, you know, no. uh, uh, yeah. I, I could tell you it's definitely not a solution. It's just another form of madness. And thank you for the counsel uh, that talking me off the ledge uh before we move on from this and talk about uh, uh issues in, in the united states everything's connected these days but uh joe biden calling uh, putin a war criminal and uh, i i personally believe he's uh, a war criminal uh but it's just again it's hard to establish principles of conduct and uh have what you say have meaning miles if we look, we overlook the criminality of our leaders in the past. And I've lived through all these things. I talk about this with my friends all the time. Do you realize how much slaughter we've lived through by our government? Just, I mean, I just think of bombing Cambodia. This is way before you were born and, and all the devastation that brought on to that country uh, when Richard Nixon did that uh, in the early seventies. So, when you're, what's your reaction when you see uh, Joe Biden declare that Putin is a war criminal? You could go on and on about the history of war crimes can, uh, carried out by U.S. officials. Um, so to your point, I think that's a very fair uh, response is just to say we need to shine a light on ourselves. In some ways, I think that that's what Putin has tried to do. I mean, not that his goal was to, you know, make the U.S. kind of uh, confess to past crimes or something, but the way the terminology, I think I talked about some of this the last time we spoke, was uh, it was about treating Ukraine as if they were Iraq, and this was 2003, and that it was they were building some type of a, you know, a nuclear stockpile, that they were um, planning to, that they were carrying out some type of atrocities against the Russian people, um, that they were plotting some type of nefarious activity, all the kind of things that um, the U.S. did in the run-up to uh, the Iraq war by presenting false information to justify that uh, that military effort. That's kind of the... There was, Putin was just using the U.S. playbook, you know? And so in a lot of ways, I think that was a reflection of kind of how the U.S. went about things. And uh, if anything, we should take a lesson from that and say, hey, we don't trust it when Putin's doing it. You know, we we, we see this for what it is, which is a bald-faced um, uh, kind of justification for uh, just an offensive military operation that was decided by... Uh, leaders within Russia had nothing to do with any type of um, military effort carried out by Ukraine or being plotted, much like there was none being ca- carried out or plotted by Iraq when we when we went in there. That said, I mean, w- we don't have to... The U.S. government has so many crimes that it has to uh, 
acknowledge, I think, before we can reach any point of being a voice of moral clarity on the world stage. And that is a real thing. I mean, people will say, oh, that'll never happen. But like, you know, truth and reconciliation committees and everything like that has happened before. Look at, you know, Germany after World War II, um, plenty of other cases where there's been having, there's been some accountability and some reckoning with both uh, injustices, war crimes, and just past uh, behavior by by governments. And the U.S. hasn't really gone through any of that. We've just, you know, covered things up and justified things and moved on and gotten Rumsfeld to be like, you know, some speaker who gets paid going around the world. I know he's passed away now, but, you know, Kissinger is certainly still doing that. And, you know, you brought up Cambodia. If we look at Laos, if we look at Indonesia, the Philippines, so many places around the world, the U.S. has really just had a devastating impact in it on our own shores, too, or, or at least, you know, around uh, America. If we look at the Monroe Doctrine and our involvement in Latin America, it's been equally uh, devastating I'd say, to countries around the world in order to advance American interests. And we've had no real uh, moments of reflection upon that as a country. Uh, I know it's all very depressing, but I will say, like, the one thing I'm really uh, encouraged by is the fact that the Biden administration so far has not um, bought into all of the, uh, you know, the war drums that have been beaten outside of the White House to try to get the U.S. to be more militarily involved in this conflict right now. Um, the If you look at the recent press briefings, all these media outlets are just asking why are we not sending, you know, B-52 bombers in or, you know, F-15s or what have you. Like, uh, they're basically the ones that are trying to provoke some type of military conflict, not to mention, you know, the, well, they're certainly funded by many of the same defense contractors that are also lobbying to um, make sure that the U.S. gets more militarily involved. And I've seen their shares uh, on the market increase dramatically over the course of this conflict mm. because war, you know, is a is a money-making machine. And so a lot of people stand to benefit from it. But certainly not Ukrainians or Russians don't, you know, when it comes to, to, to working people. So, yeah, I think that there's um, a way in which that kind of rhetoric about war crimes, it just... It, it, it makes somebody like you or I think, oh, wait, can we, like, turn the mirror back on ourselves a little bit about these things? And obviously Putin responded with some rhetorical backlash as well. Um, but if you look back in history, oftentimes rhetorical escalation precedes some type of a political settlement. I'm not saying that will necessarily occur this time, but I'm not buying into, like, oh, that's a marker of the fact that the U.S. is going to, you know, carry out more military action or something. If anything, I think that could be a sign that we are going to move back towards more of a rhetorical warfare um, uh, situation when, when it comes to Russia. So that's that, that's my hope. Anyway. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting watching Putin uh, struggle to uh, uh, figure out a, a political message to play that went over support in the United States uh, in the, the weird world of American politics. Uh, Putin has essentially aligned himself with the Donald Trump uh, wing of American politics. He's essentially a MAGA, a MAGA man. Uh, and so I just noticed this in his rhetoric. He talked about uh, how the U S and uh, the U S allies are trying to cancel Russia. He used the word cancel. <laughs> I'm like, God damn, man. <laughs> And next thing you know, he's going to be talking about a woke mob uh, and critical race theory. Uh, and 
and they were asserting um, at one point that uh, it's a must uh, to watch Tucker Carlson commentary. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, and Tucker Carlson, of course, uh, the leading spokesman of the far right on uh, on Fox, very uh, influential man in American politics. It's time to stop pretending that's not the case. Uh, was an outspoken early on supporter of Putin. And uh, he's kind of trying to figure things out. So it's had an impact on American politics because I feel as though the MAGA right, and get your thoughts on this, uh, is slowly distancing itself um, from Putin. In many ways, they, they felt a kinship there, um, just nationalism for one thing and uh, macho uh, bravado for another thing. And uh, Putin uh, clearly supported Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, so what's your sense of the fallout uh, in terms of American, the, the American right and their attitude uh, toward Russia and Putin right now? I think there's two main kind of strands on the American right in this moment as it relates to Russia. And the first is the Tucker Carlson wing, the Donald Trump wing, the Steve Bannon wing, the clearly pro-Trump pro-Putin, you know, worldview that that treats authoritarianism as the idealized version of our governmental system, that we need a strong leader. They have a strong leader. We're fighting the woke mob. They're fighting the woke mob. You know, that sees the world in terms of a black and white and that the way that we need to organize our politics to get out of this liberal malaise they see is to uh, subvert democracy or at least sidestep it and install somebody who can carry out a agenda of like national revival that involves doing things like, you know, getting any discussion of U S history that doesn't, shine a bright light on, you know, <laughs> the all everything America has done in the world, um, taking that out of the classrooms, taking that out of our national dialogue, um, basically rewriting history to make ourselves the, not just the victors, but also the heroes in, in every situation, and to basically establish, uh, using white grievance politics, establish uh, you know, American-born, naturalist, white um, status quo in America, as if that doesn't basically already exist, but certainly to solidify that in American politics. That's the goal, I think. It is white nationalism, although they wouldn't qualify it as that, that people like Tucker Carlson, Steve Bannon, and Donald Trump hold. The other strand is what you just discussed, is the much more... um, widely held view of Putin as somehow anathema to what we believe in as Americans, because he's a strong man, because he's carrying out this um, violent policy against a neighboring country that he's outside of the bounds of what we would, you know, perceive as an acceptable ally or, you know, somebody we would look at with any sense of, you know, uh, admiration And that's being, you know, when it comes to leaders, you see that in Lindsey Graham, you see it with uh, Mitch McConnell, the general leadership of the Republican Party politically, I think, is more in that pool. But 
Donald Trump is still the de facto leader of the Republican Party. He's still the most likely nominee. He's still the one that controls the messaging. Fox News is still the biggest outlet, and Tucker Carlson is the most you know popular host on that show. Um, in cable news, they're massively impactful in terms of the American right and and the politics around these things. And while you can see the polls moving in Biden's direction during this conflict, because Americans are um, understandably invested in what is happening in the Ukraine, partially because of all the media coverage about it and because it's just a question of, you know, where do you stand? Basically, do you want to see a devastating war continue or do you want to, you know, put an end to it and place blame where it should be placed at the, at the hands of Putin? Um, I don't know if that's still going to be the case when it comes to the next election, if people will remember this, if they will care as much about Putin, about Zelensky. Um, and so the Trumpian view of, you know, looking up to an authoritarian leader as an example that we should reflect in America, I think Trump is going to be able to carry that on without having to face any consequence for being on the other side of this issue, even though you see in polls, you know, Republicans broadly might um, have a more negative view of Putin and, and what he's doing in Ukraine. When it comes time to vote in a primary, I don't see those voters at this point abandoning Trump because of that. And even the people that are coming up kind of in Trump's wake, people like DeSantis and such, they're not, you know, using this as a wedge issue to kind of go against Trump, really. I mean, they're, if anything, just backing away from it. That's mainly what you see. And I think that's just cowardice. And that's, you know, much of the Republican Party is just trying to, like, stay out of this fight, kind of how they did on vaccines. I mean, vaccines, they basically were just like, okay, we're anti-vax. But then once Trump started saying some pro-vax stuff, they just basically backed off of it because they didn't want that fight. And I think you're seeing that in terms of how the National Republican Party is responding to this, too. So it certainly is a divide. Um, but unfortunately, I my guess is that by the time we're in a place where, you know, voters are going to be deciding kind of the future of the Republican Party. The Trumpian perspective is still going to win out unless there's some type of an actual opposition within the the, the Republican Party that um, arises. But we're not seeing it so far. Well put. Very well put. And I, I, I bring it down to Illinois politics. To me, it's a microcosm. And I'm watching very closely. And we come, I write about it. I talk about it all the time. The uh, gubernatorial primary. And I watch where all these Republican candidates are running against Pritzker are on all these issues that Trump has defined uh, as the most compelling issues that Republicans should adhere to, starting with the, his rhetoric about the election being stolen. Uh, and then, uh, of course, moving on with the vax, the vax and uh, uh, how there should be no mandates, et cetera, and so forth. And I'm, you're right. They, what they do is they don't take a stand. The quote unquote Republican candidate, the, the Republican candidates are running quote unquote as moderates. And I just laugh at that word when it comes to Republican policies these days and politicians. Uh, they're essentially, they just duck and dodge and pretend that these issues don't exist. And and if asked about them, say, "Oh, that doesn't affect Illinois." Okay, a war in Ukraine doesn't affect Illinois. Uh, Illinois inflation, the, you know, caused by that war doesn't affect. This doesn't affect Illinois at all. Okay, uh, and uh, you know, our vaccine mandates don't affect Illinois. Our abortion rights uh, don't affect Illinois. You follow me, uh, Miles? They just try to 
avoid uh, any taking any stand. And the Repu- few Republicans who do take a stand are immediately uh, ousted from the party. Just like Johnny Canizera is trying to do with his supporters in the city council. They don't allow any opportunity for anybody to have a, a divergent opinion when it comes to Trump. So look at what they're doing to Cheney and look what they've done to Kinsinger. So, uh, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, and they're ducking and dodging and waiting for it to end. And then they'll, uh, they'll go back to uh, their old games and start supporting Tucker Carlson again. All right, let's move on to uh, away from Ukraine and talk about uh, probably what would have been our lead item uh, if it wasn't for the raging war. And that is the fact that the Fed to battle inflation has cut interest rates. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, The impact of cutting interest rates on citizens in the United States, uh, as opposed to the impact of having inflation uh, forcing up the price of goods uh, and commodities, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, Your thoughts on using uh, interest rates to combat inflation. Sure. Well, uh, the the quick correction, they raised the interest rates, which my bad. uh, uh, Did I say cut? I meant to say raise. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, Which is the the first time in a very long time we've seen interest rates raised uh, because we've been in an economic uh, emergency, I think, since at least the start of the pandemic. But if you look at uh, economic figures, it's actually started a little bit before the pandemic even hit. Uh, it was towards the tail end of Trump's president first term. We started to, to you know, see a, an economic, slight economic downturn. And in response to that, we've had the monetary policy at the Federal Reserve has been one of trying to, you know, get the economy back moving and get, and get a strong job market, get people, you know, back in the pro, in the process of buying things. I mean, during the pandemic, nobody was buying cars, nobody was buying new things because we were all locked away and, you know, doing our <laughs> civic duty by not uh, going out into the world, basically hibernating. Um, we're in a different phase now, um, whether we like it or not, you know, the pandemic has been decided to be effectively ended by our political leaders and even at least the politically appointed public health officials we have in the country have all decided to move on. Um, and so we're in a different stage now where people are, you know, starting to buy things more and, you know, spend money. And at the same time, we're seeing inflation increase. It's still, it's, it's around like 7%. Now we're seeing uh, kind of an energy crisis in part stoked by um, something, what we were just talking about, the conflict in Russia because of geopolitical decisions made through OPEC and other um, organizations around the world that are around energy pricing as it relates to fossil fuels. Um the way that the Federal Reserve has decided to respond to this, it goes back to something, you know, a lot of listeners probably remember this, you certainly do, is what they call the Volcker Rule, um, named after Paul Volcker, who was the head of the Federal Reserve back in the late 70s, who came on under uh, Jimmy Carter. He basically said, look, inflation has been so high for so long, people are paying much higher prices for goods the way to respond to that is to massively raise interest rates um, over a period of time and basically induce a recession on the country. 
And that by doing so, we will lower inflation rates that will, you know, create a more stable economic future going forward. The question, you know, and, and if you look at the history, I mean, Jay Powell, the current head of the Federal Reserve, is a big Volcarite. He, like, you know, bought tons of copies of Volcker's autobiography and, you know, cheers uh, all of his actions and such. But then up until now, though, um, I would say Powell, much like Yellen, uh, Janet Yellen, who's the Treasury Secretary, they've had a more um, kind of offensive approach to the economy. They want to keep, they've wanted to keep interest rates low so that we could actually do fiscal policy along with monetary policy. So we're not just uh, trying to control pricing, but we're going to you know, spend money. That's what the Biden administration had started to do. And even under Trump at the very end of his term, when he passed the CARES Act, that was the approach. Basically, we need to throw gasoline on the economy if we want to get it started. But since uh, the role of Joe Manchin and the Democratic caucus, which stopped the social spending bill, the only a bill that was designed to uh, implement Joe Biden's domestic agenda, um, Manchin effectively blocked that. Since then, the conversation has completely turned away from how we can get our economy running in a more stable, sustainable, and um, uh, equitable way than uh, we had had before the pandemic hit. I mean, that was what people were talking about. We're going to re-envision kind of how our economic system is set up. That would involve not raising interest rates, but rather passing social spending policies that will do things like provide paid family leave, that would invest in a renewable energy future, that would... um, you know, give uh, uh, supplement union rights in the United States so that people are able to make more demands on the job and and get more benefits out of their employers that would raise wages. You know, you remember that was one part of Biden's push long ago was to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. All of that has kind of gone out the window now and things have changed towards we need to stop deficits from rising and we need to deal with inflation. And what that has always been used for throughout American history when it was true under Paul Volcker and will be true under um, Jay Powell is austerity policies. And that means basically cutting social spending, punishing the base working people, making, um, you know, their making them pay more for things. I mean, that's what that means, right? Is, you know, when you raise interest rates, that means you buy a car, you know, you pay interest, you pay, buy a house, you pay mortgage, that's all going to cost more. So it's effectively a way to stop people from spending as much money, at least in the short term, so that things can stabilize. But the people that hurts are the people that are going to buy stuff, you know, and that's what's going to happen. And if you look at inflation, this is just the last thing I'll say on this, is that Inflation, obviously the main driver, and we've seen this, you know, pretty much every time there's some spike in inflation, it has to do with the oil and gas industry. It has to do with um, the cost of uh, energy in America. And that cost is not directly correlated to how much it takes to produce that. It's how much these companies want to charge so that they can pad their profits. And that's exactly what's happening. We're seeing oil prices plummet, and yet we're seeing the prices continue to increase. And in the United States, we once had a government regime that was willing to do, I mean, 
you know, people that would call me some, you know, like a communist or tanky or whatever would say, oh, he's talking about price control. He's talking about state planning. But the United States for decades had actual controls over how energy was produced and exported in the United States. And we deregulated everything uh, during around that same period during the 70s under Carter. We basically just deregulated the energy industry and now we just subsidize them. And so we don't even see the real cost of gasoline. We just see whatever the result is after the government gives massive subsidies. The major um, gas producers in the United States pay not only zero in taxes, they pay a negative tax rate based on the amount of subsidies we give them. And at the same time, we are doing nothing to support renewable energy, which would provide actual um, energy independence because we would not be reliant on a global oil supply, which is which is why we're being impacted by this conflict across the world in Russia and Ukraine right now. So I think there's way better steps that we could take as a country to deal with some of these broader structural economic problems we have. But unfortunately, our leaders seem set in that same mindset of austerity politics that have unfortunately led us down that same path of economic ruin we've seen for, for years and years. That is a great ref, man. You had me going there. I'll take me back in time to 1980 and Paul Volcker and Jimmy Carter and then the fight, the Democratic primary where Ted Kennedy ran at uh, Jimmy Carter. This is history, folks. This happened. Well, you millennials, it didn't happen in your lifetime, but just before your lifetime. And Ted Kennedy uh, led a revolt in the, Repub- in the Democratic Party from the left against those Volcker policies, lost the nomination, uh, in part because he's such a flawed character. That's ancient history as well. Uh, but I remember the rousing speech he gave at the Democratic Convention in New York in 1980 about uh, how the goals of his campaign would never die. Uh, and then, of course, the divisions in the Democratic Party helped lead to Ronald Reagan's ascension. Uh, and the rest is uh, history. But, uh, yeah, it seems like Democrats never want uh, to learn anything from the past. And speaking of which, Joe Manchin. Wow. Blocking the appointment of uh, was Sarah Bloom, is that her name, to the Fed? Sarah Bloom Raskin, yeah. Yeah, Raskin. And um, I... I know uh, in these times, she's probably going to have a story about this coming up. I haven't seen one yet. Uh, she was a flawed candidate. No doubt about it. She had her issues. Okay. Let's put those aside. Let's not uh, get into uh, adjudicate her past and uh, accusations of conflict of interest. Let's just talk about the essential principal reason articulated by Manchin for uh voting against her was he did not want the fed to intervene in using its powers on issues of uh, uh, climate control. And I'm like, how many years do we got left miles before we realize it's just like irrevocable. And I know, I know you, you caution me against gloom and doom and just saying everything is hopeless. Uh, so I'm going to need more counseling from you. I'm going to need a surge of optimism. It's just mind boggling that, the Democratic Party is taking a stand against this just basic uh, assertion that there's things that we can do to weaken our dependence on oil and gas and more th- and things that we can do uh, to help protect the environment. But even the Democrats can't even in the most basic of way support that. Uh, am I being too unfair to Joe Manchin when I uh, recount it this way, Miles? Joe Manchin has been one of the biggest profiteers of our fossil fuel dependent uh, energy 
and economic system. Uh, he started oil companies, you know, he, he's like, uh, and now his son runs them or at least is capitalizing upon them. Oh, when he gave this uh, speech last week um, to people within the oil and gas industry, he kept using the term we, you know, talking about the issues that are facing the, you know, problems that are uh, 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 facing the uh, oil and gas companies due to um, there being more desire to place limits on profiteering and, um, you know, to, to have some more limits on carbon dispersal into the atmosphere. So he clearly sees himself as, if not part of um, the fossil fuel industry, uh, an ambassador for it, or, you know, and a, uh, part, of, part of that team. And so, no, I don't think you're being too hard on him. He's, I think he's very clear on that. Um, within our anti-democratic United States uh, Senate, he is able to exercise veto power on any uh, attempts to rectify that relationship and to place regulations, which even the White House and certainly the vast majority of Democrats want to place. I mean, the, if you look at the Build Back Better Act, which has been killed by by mansion that he negotiated down from any, you know, there were, there were limits on um, the companies could, that would, they would have to face in terms of carbon emissions that was killed. There were um, uh, ways to re truly invest in, um, in producing American made uh, electric vehicle and renewable energy systems and that was all issued from the bill. Basically what the bill was, was about um, a half a trillion dollars over 10 years. So, you know, five, like that would be like 500 billions, like 50 billion a year to go towards um, uh, subsidies to let people buy more electric vehicles and you know, e-bikes and things like that to help us wean off of fossil fuels. Even that was deemed by Joe Manchin to be too much because he won't agree to any of it. So you're not wrong in any of your uh, critiques of Joe Manchin. I just think that there's plenty that the uh, Joe Biden and his administration could do outside of that, but they have not uh, embraced yet. And that's, you know, we don't need Congress's approval to, you know, you do some pricing policies or you intervene bottlenecks with industrial policy. You know, we could, uh, as Trump did, invoke the Defense Production Act and try to get, you know, companies uh, uh, implore them to start producing renewable energy and invest in renewable vehicles. Um, we could rebuild and deploy stockpiles or place limits on profiteering like Ro Khanna has just introduced a, a bill to, along with Sheldon Whitehouse in the Senate, to place actual uh, limits on the amount of profits these oil companies can get from profiteering off of low gas prices. And just to bring it back locally, I mean, we just saw Willie Wilson pull this stunt here in Chicago where he let, you don't know if you saw this, he was giving away free gas at these gas stations causing these insane gas lines and he's going to use you know these issues of high gas prices to mount his own mayoral bit now against the democrats basically that he sees in like Lori lightfoot and wherever else is running um and saying look i'm trying to get 
help the people and like serve the people um, by giving them free gas. But what that did is cause these huge gas lines and it blocked emergency vehicles from getting through. And it was, it's not an actual solution to any of these problems. It's just one of these like band-aid fixes. And we could avoid so many of these issues if we just took our energy future seriously. And yet people like Joe Manchin are, um, completely standing in the way of that. And I think until we reorient our politics around one that sees our fates as kind of intertwined when it comes to the climate, it's going to be very difficult to exert any pressure upon people who have invested their whole lives and stock portfolios in this fossil fuel industry. But that shouldn't stop the Biden administration from taking executive actions that it can right now. And it certainly shouldn't stop people running for political office or in positions of policymaking from pushing forward uh, actions that will uh, stop the United States from, you know, maintaining this uh, sick reliance on um, dirty fuels. And, you know, Sarah Bloom Raskin might not have uh, gotten her nomination confirmed this time, but that doesn't mean that in the future she she and those like her will not have their day of being in policymaking. And so I don't know if that's going to like ward off the gloom, but I would just <laughs> say like things can change. And, you know, we, we've already seen, you know, I didn't expect the squad to be in Congress, you know, five years ago. And, you know, that's I know that's not as much of a change in American politics as we'd like to see, but it's certainly a more positive development than uh, many of us would have uh, thought of before that uh, took place. So, you know, just there's the, 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 there could be a brighter future. The people in power now will not be the people in power forever, yeah. but it's on the rest of us to make sure that that actually takes place. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, uh, you're all making make me feel better all, all over again. And I will say this, the rhetoric battles in Washington are, uh, they're so outrageous uh, that I just have to laugh uh, at some level because uh, it, <laughs> the, the the kind of fierce rhetoric that MAGA uses uh, to undercut the viability of of lefties. Anybody? They're not even real lefties. They're just liberal uh, think tankers. You know, uh, it's it's just over the top. What they're doing now to uh, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, which I've talked about yesterday. I'm not going to revisit it at this moment. It's just unbelievable, uh, Miles, uh, in terms of the fact that she used to be a public defender, uh, and so they're going to try to link her to any crime that they can, any possible way to say that. Uh, so anytime somebody takes the uh, defendant's point of view uh, and, or defends them against the state when it's a criminal matter and it's a black person who's con- committed a crime, uh, it will be used to terrify people. On the other hand, they will defend to their end, to their dying uh, breath, the right of Donald Trump to have every conceivable safety net imposed for him to protect him from any consequence of anything, any lie he's done, anything he is uh any criminal act he's done calling up the, the election counter, the, the vote counters in Georgia and saying, find them the votes I need to get reelected. It's just mind blowing. And you right here, Richard Irvin here. I said, I wasn't going to go down this path miles, but I'm just going to say Richard Irvin, the leading Republican for governor on the Republican side was a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, Mr. Irvin, I really hope you come uh, 
to the aid. There you go. You talk about a, a, a duck and a dodge, Miles. You will not hear a word from Richard Irvin, who was a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, and is uh, Ken Griffin's candidate for governor here in the state of Illinois. You will not hear a word from him defending uh, Justice nominee uh, Jackson uh, on from the uh, attacks. So I just I said I wasn't going to go there, Miles, and I couldn't resist. Uh, all right, we're going to uh, close with local. Uh, we started with local. We're going to close with local. I've been watching the Kim Fox backlash. You and I have talked about Kim Fox for quite a while. Um we talk about just the larger movement that she represents. And I'm seeing this intense backlash against Kim Fox. She was able to get reelected in 2020. It would be a tougher challenge, uh, I would say, uh, from where we are right now. Uh, so your general thoughts on the backlash locally of, uh, against Kim Fox and how it fits into just sort of a larger national narrative. The role of a progressive defense attorney district attorney in Kim Fox's case is uh, uh, it's extremely difficult because at one hand you are facing the accountability or at least some pressure from the groups that were involved in electing you, which in Kim Fox's case were a lot more of the, you know, left wing uh, political groups in the city Um that we're trying to unseat Anita Alvarez, the previous district uh, attorney. And you're also under siege from the, the right from, and certainly from those that are most defending of the police and the powers that be. And now I think we're seeing a conflagration of both of those critiques because there's, um, for one, the decision around Jesse Smollett, which, you know, you've spoken about quite a bit, which uh, people blame Kim Fox, rightly or wrongly, I would say, you know, misguidedly, certainly, um, the the right-wing press and a lot of people that view that um, controversy think that Kim Fox like ran cover for Jesse Smollett and certainly think that based on his sentencing and her views on that. And now him getting out on appeal, um, they consider it as, as like she's on his side or something versus her trying to not, you know, further add to our incarceration crisis in the city, which uh, and in this county, when she was elected to deal with the fact that we have overcrowded prisons, the fact that we're spending massive amounts of money locking people up, um, all of the issues that play into, you know, our, our, the crisis in our criminal justice system that she was elected to help solve. Um, so she's getting pushed back on for, for, for that decision for her role in Jesse Smollett. And now this recent news that came out that the police officer involved in the death of Adam Toledo will not be prosecuted is uh, jetting up a lot of anger on the left amongst a lot of the organizations that were involved in help, even helping her get elected in the first place, if not by campaigning for Kim Fox and at least by trying to stop the opposition to her. Um, and that's a difficult position that, uh, that, that she's in. I mean, her office has to go by what, you know, advice they're getting on how to go about these, these cases. And I don't have all the facts on the uh, Toledo uh, shooting. I think that that's, it was clearly a travesty and there should be some accountability for that, uh, for that police officer. I'm sure that the family will try to get civil litigation going and try to get some type of a, um, 
a settlement out of that, but that it, you know, that's not enough to bring back the life of a, a young person who was, who was murdered by police. So I understand the anger on that side more, much more so than I do the um, people flipping out about Jesse Smollett. Cause that just seems like such small beans in comparison to the more a deep crisis facing our city and facing our um, criminal justice system. So, yeah, I mean, that's, it, 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 I think it's a very difficult position for anybody to run as a progressive uh, prosecutor, progressive district attorney and maintain that role. And those tensions are what we're seeing flare up now. We're seeing it a little bit in Philadelphia too with Larry Krasner. You know, he's gotten a lot of pushback by many of the groups that were involved in leading to his election. Um, and cause it's kind of new territory for electoral for groups to get involved electorally around criminal justice issues by backing people whose job it is to basically carry out the criminal justice system. Um, it's much like trying to elect a progressive mayor whose job it is to manage, you know, city administration and finances. That's a much harder road to hoe than it is to be a legislator or to be an advocate or, you know, all these other types of positions within government where, you don't get your hands quite as dirty. Um, so, I mean, I have personal critiques, but I just think it's 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 a difficult um, situation for anybody to be in. And I think overall, if you look at the political landscape, the people that are most coming for Kim Fox are not to her left. You know, they're not progressives. They're going to be the right wing, corporate funded opposition and that would be far worse towards reforming our criminal justice system and pushing for a more progressive future so that's something to keep in mind when it comes to um, to all of these issues i think i had a smile when you said progressive mayor in chicago i just had a <laughs> what a what a thought in your life miles you well you, you were born during the hair washing years i think uh so you had one brief month and you were a baby so uh it, no i think uh i'm not uh, certain that chicago's uh capable of electing a progressive mayor or if a progressive elected mayor is capable of uh sticking to progressive politics but uh, maybe i'm being too cynical and unfair all right uh miles we're going to close it down uh as we always do with your segment by giving you an opportunity to talk about some of the great articles or uh, or essays, what have you, in in these times. Take it away. Sure. I would recommend uh, three we've got up right now at InTheseTimes.com. One is an interview with um, an activist involved in the campaign to stop General Iron, which um, I'm sure your listeners are somewhat familiar with, the effort to move the metal scrapper facility from Lincoln Park down to the 10th Ward. Uh, down at the southeast side um, through a hunger strike and many protest, years of protesting. Um, they were uh, so far very successful in stopping that scrapper from being built. So there was an interview um, on our site about kind of how community support helped lead to that win. Um, we also have a different Q&A with a striking Minnesota teacher because the Minnesota teachers take in a Page, I would say, out of the mighty Chicago Teachers Union's playbook have uh, gone on strike, not just for their own economic um, security, but also for um, class size um, stabilization, you know, some limits on class sizes. And I think 
very importantly for having mental health supports for students uh, within their schools, which is kind of the social justice unionism vision that CORE and the CTU helped to um, really take the uh, lead on years ago. Um, so definitely check those out. And then my colleague, Sarah Lazar, who I'm always uh, hyping up on here, she has a great piece on the um, some an issue in these times has been covering quite a bit, which, bit with, with, which is the um, effort to make sure that there's global equity when it comes to vaccine dispersal and how that's run into so many roadblocks because there has now been uh, an agreement, uh, compromise agreement reached around a TRIPS waiver, which is basically a way to kind of get around internet, uh, um, get around patent laws, intellectual patent waivers, um, so that countries can access the information to produce their own mRNA vaccine so that they don't have to go through these pharmaceutical companies, which the United States citizens completely subsidize, you know, all the research for all the R&D. If it comes to Pfizer and Moderna, they might be reaping the profits from these vaccines, but we certainly paid for the research that went into them. So this is a way to um, make sure that that information is um, being provided to countries, especially in the global south. There was a proposal put forward by South Africa and India, and I think 65 other Global South countries signed on to it because there's only, you know, I think it's less than 10% of Africa, um, the, the population has been vaccinated yet. It's been a long time push to get um, some equity in vaccine dispersal. And it's been framed as a win, and certainly there are positives that have come out of this compromise. It hasn't been you know, carried out yet, but it was reached. Um, but it does not include... Um, things like testing and antivirals and therapeutics, which are also very critical to stopping this pandemic. So it's a piece that Sarah Lazar wrote, um, kind of speaking, reporting, talking to global health activists and advocates about why they see that compromise as not being not going far enough. That I think is a really important um, counter to much of the um, you know, celebration that's gone on around this agreement, because it's still, uh, if we really want to, uh, push global health forward and make sure we don't see a future, which you referenced earlier, where there's, you know, new variants popping up all the time and that COVID becomes not just an endemic disease, but in fact, like a constant series of waves, then we need to make sure that the whole world has um, access to not just vaccines, but also all the other treatments that are necessary to, um, to, to stop it in its tracks. So, yeah, so I think that's an important article. I would encourage people to read all three, check out in these times, in these times.com and keep listening to the Ben Jarofsky show. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, Richard Irvin, you wouldn't go down that uh, road, but if he has any courage, I would, I would definitely uh, say Irvin should come on, talk to <laughs> Benny J, see if he can handle the heat. Oh, I don't think he'll ever come on this show. You know, the funny thing is, is that when I look at Richard Irvin's past, uh, I see somebody who might fit in uh, in the, the right corner of the, the Benny J universe. Uh, but now, you know, his ambition is so strong that he's just gone full MAGA now and he's taking Kenny G's money. Uh, but yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I what's, I'm going to, I may get Sarah Lazar back in this show. She's proved very difficult, uh, very busy uh, journalist, Sarah Lazar, but we'll get her back. Uh, as you know, Miles, she's been on the show at least once before uh, talking about her novel that she wrote, but uh, we'll get her back because I do love her, uh, her work and uh, she is, you know, she's very smart. 
Um, all right, uh, Miles, thank you very much. Uh, Miles Kampflassen, uh, editor writer for In These Times and, of course, proud graduate of Whitney Young High School. He, uh, and rock and roll star. He's in a rock band as well. So a lot going on for Miles. Uh, and the very, thank you very much, Miles. I also want to thank the man, myth, the legend, pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. And as Miles and Sarah Lazar will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. And the D stands for DeMarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. 